thank you very, very much. And thank you everyone for being here. On behalf of Section 27, I welcome you all. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here, partly because Section 27 is uh, like, I suppose, uh, mine and Lina's uh, second or third home. Uh, we both have such a long association with the organization and the people within it. Uh, we appreciate being here very, very much on behalf of the two of us who are here dialing in from India. Um, in the pandemic, it can seem like we are all much, much further away than we really are. Uh, otherwise, spiritually, emotionally, uh, and I think also in solidarity, we've all worked together so much that in many ways, I think to see you here, Omanyana, it's not actually that much of a surprise because we see each other, we read each other's work all the time. So... Uh, I suppose it's a good reminder, the fact that distance itself doesn't mean that we are distant in any way whatsoever and that we're working very closely. That, of course, is the most apt way of getting to the, the topic that is burning up the world at the moment, which is a waiver proposal of the pharmaceutical monopolies that are encoded into a very obscure, or should I say a formally obscure trade law at the World Trade Organization called TRIPS, which uh, for those of you who do not devote your lives to looking at these things such as we do uh, with regret, um, stands for the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. The WTO was created in 1995, and when this trade rule was uh, proposed at the time, there were not that many developing countries who objected and in part, they did not object because they did not understand what it meant. 25 years ago is a lifetime away. If we think of the kinds of changes that we've seen in our own lives since 1995, that world is almost unimaginable. In that world, also, another unimaginable thing was the effect that a trade rule like this could have on uh, the most precious aspect of our existence, our very human lives. South Africa was unfortunately one of the first countries to experience the brunt of this trade rule when, by 1999, uh, groups that are closely allied with Section 27, such as the Treatment Action Campaign, started organizing to fight to save their lives. At the time, drugs to treat HIV and AIDS, called antiretrovirals, had been in existence for about three years in the United States. They had dramatically transformed the horizon of life and death, turning AIDS from a death sentence into a chronic manageable condition called HIV, which would allow you to live out your life in much the same way as a person with diabetes who treats themselves with insulin can do. That privilege, however, was not extended to South Africa. It was not extended to Sub-Saharan Africa, was not extended to many, many parts of the world in which HIV and AIDS had become much greater an issue than it ever was demographically in the United States and Europe. At a cost of $10,000 a year, there were very few people who could afford any of these drugs. And that led to a wave of the most inspiring activism that I have ever seen, in fact, led to my involvement in this movement 20 years ago, which I slightly regret. <laughs> in the sense that I've spent the last 20 years of my life, as my parents would say, consistently earning less money than I did in the previous year, somehow. I have no idea how that happened. Uh, but 
spiritually, uh, emotionally, this has been the most rewarding experience of my life to be able to work in this movement alongside people such as Lina and Ubonyana and have the inspiration of people such as Dr. Klale and Mofoke. I, uh, I welcome you today to this seminar because today is a day, uh, tomorrow, today is a week during which a proposal that was floated by South Africa and India to suspend these pharmaceutical monopolies will be heard yet again at a Crips Council meeting. It has been heard now numerous times, uh, formally, informally, in closed door discussions, in hostile open sessions, in uh, passive aggressively open sessions from October of last year. You would imagine that in a pandemic where reaching treatment, including vaccines to as many people in the world as possible, to stem the tide of this global emergency, to lessen the kinds of horrific situations we see unfolding in India today. And unfortunately, I have to say this, the kind of threat that lurks behind any unvaccinated society anywhere in the world. The kind of resurgence we see in India today is only happening here to a less extent in Turkey, to a certain extent still continuing in Brazil, but it is the kind of situation that can reoccur in any society that has not been vaccinated to the extent that the US and the UK have, where over 40% of their citizens, and in the UK over 50% of their citizens have received one dose, and as a result of which are not only opening up, but in fact actually solidifying plans to be able to exchange plane loads of tourists on the basis of a vaccination certificate in order to be able to enjoy their summer holidays in the European Union and in the United States. And this at a time when there are the scenes outside Delhi hospitals or Bombay hospitals are like from a zombie movie. It is really something unimaginable to look at people sitting in public transport and being resuscitated briefly by portable oxygen as the hospital beds have overflown to such an extent that you can't even get near the hospital. To address this inequity, South Africa led a proposal. I should say this is one of the great instances in which India has followed South Africa's lead on this, and particularly the inspiring lead of a South African diplomat, Mustakim Dekama, who uh, really, for a long amount of time, single-handedly led this charge with the support of the South African government, which India then joined in at an early stage to support, to waive pharmaceutical monopolies in the pandemic. And over 100 developing countries want this to happen. An overwhelming majority of the 165 member countries at the WTO want this to happen too. A handful of rich countries, including the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Japan, inexplicably Brazil, do not want it to happen. And because the WTO functions on what something that they call consensus, something that I call instead uh, rule by rich country, we cannot actually have this proposal passed. It is still in limbo in such an emergency, in such a crucial, critical time for the entire world. And that is something I think that tells us what the state of the world is uh, and how it could be fixed. So without further ado, we'll get to our first speaker, uh, the celebrated, uh, much-loved and uh, highly regarded Dr. Tlaleng Mofokeng, who I'm a personal fan of, by the way. I was telling Dr. Mofokeng before the seminar started that I'm a huge fan of her communication style and her ability to communicate issues that are otherwise 
seen as rather hectoring or boring uh, in the most lovely way possible to as many people as she can reach and I uh, appreciate that very much. Dr. Mofakeng is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the right of everyone to uh, the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. Uh, Dr. Mofokeng is a medical doctor at a DISA clinic with a focus on sexual and reproductive health rights, a senior lecturer in gender and HIV, an acclaimed author and a broadcaster, and a much-loved public personality, not just in South Africa. So doc, welcome, welcome, Dr. Mofokeng. And I was wondering if you might start us off um, by thinking of how, how you in this moment, not just as a UN Special Rapporteur and as a person of consequence in the world of public health, but also as a South African, are uh, dealing with the situation that you find yourself in and how you think that relates to how public health frameworks uh, connect to access to medicines. Thank you very much, um, Achal, and thank you very much to colleagues and everyone who's watching. I'm really thankful for the invitation to share, you know, this time with you. It's quite incredible um, how just consumed and devastating um, this time has been, you know, um, just when we thought that globally, you know, all the countries seem to to kind of, you know, um, be managing at least with new cases, Despite a lack of vaccine, you know, we've now seen the news that's coming out of India. And we can't say that we couldn't have predicted that that what would happen. Um, but it's really just um, a harrowing time um, for, for all of us. And just to say that, um, you know, to people who are in India, who have family and loved ones there, um, that we, we are thinking of you. Um, and we hope that... These sessions um, and the work that we're all collectively doing um, behind the scenes and also um, in the public eye can really go um, a long way to ensure health equity. Um, it's been really over a year since the pandemic first took hold of the world, a real shock to our systems. Um, and I think even if you're just looking at the unequal relationships between the so-called global south and the global north, you know, just even that demarcation already tells you about the type of power dynamics, you know, that are existing um, in the world um, and definitely in the global health space. And even as myself, as a right, as a special rapporteur on the right to health, you know, together with other um, independent experts, we've taken on numerous levels um, interventions, you know, to caution global leaders and businesses against the use of market solutions and nationalism to facilitate preferential access to technologies. That's really what it is. And I like how you meant, you know, and explained what's happening in the WTO. Um, it's not really just a vote, you know, about consensus. This is about enabling and facilitating continued power imbalances in the global health space. And when you add profiteering and profit-making in a time of pandemic, it's really unforgivable um, and quite disappointing what has happened. And, you know, since the possibility of the vaccine was presented, vaccine nationalism among wealthy developed countries has dominated negotiations. We know in terms of procurement, in terms of research and development, in terms of manufacturing, um, they have directly taken steps to impede the ability of developing low-income countries, those in the so-called global south, 
um, with their own ability to procure and manufacture vaccines in sufficient quantities to protect their own um, uh, citizens first um, and therefore later on restart the economies. And I think for me, it's to really continue to reiterate and underscore that the right to health, um, which is directly linked to accessible, affordable, quality vaccine, is a human right. Vaccines are, um, especially the COVID-19 vaccine, has been listed as essential medicine, which means that there are some human rights, international human rights obligations on the part of states as well as businesses alike. And so as we've seen in the news and, and with the different reports that we are getting at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, there are some rights abuses, there are some violations. And again, these have a root cause, right? The global health system still replicates and is still reeling with the impact of colonialism um, and, and the power relations between colonizing and colonized nations. And that legacy of exclusion and exploitation um, in the global health um, healthcare system is really what has caused these problems that we have now. And I think that, of course, it's a self-serving um, activity to hold vaccines, to block the WTO um, measures. It's a proposal for temporary waiver. It's not even a permanent waiver. That is a, just a blanket waiver. It's a very clear and specific temporary waiver that's related to the COVID-19 um, vaccine. But we can see how power relations um, reinscribe colonial inequalities and neocolonialism around this vaccine. And there are, of course, different obligations that are you know, expected of states, parties, of course, to respect, fulfill um, and protect the right to health. But there is also the, the, the guide, the business um, guiding principles on human rights. And, um, you know, in terms of our recommendations to businesses, particularly, is that they should comply with international obligations to ensure access to medicines and, of course, ensure international assistance and cooperation. And the, the case of India is showing us precisely um, why we need the entire chain of health access to be in place. Vaccine is one important, important element, but we still need capacity to be able to treat. We need capacity to test. We need capacity to collect proper data and quantify and track all of the different um, responses that are required in any particular country or region. And of course, the issue of technologies and intellectual property data and the know-how um, is something that we also continue to underscore to demand um, that develop developed countries and the richer countries um, are sharing this, this knowledge. Because like you are saying, a lot of the countries that are actually the worstly affected in the global south are actually countries who themselves have capacity to be able to procure and manufacture and distribute these vaccines. So I'll stop here um, and allow us just to, uh, you know, to, to have other inputs and perhaps maybe take a few questions um, before I go. But it's really this pandemic is happening within a context of a global system of governance uh, predicated on deeply unequal hierarchies. And those are often based on race, gender, sexuality, ability, religion, age, and wealth. And in this case of COVID-19, we can see how wealth and race, I'd even argue, um, is making uh, this issue of inequity 
a very urgent issue that we need to talk about. And I think that's a big elephant in the room in, in the global, in the global health system is for us to actually admit once and for all that the current global health architecture has remnants and, 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 and has, um, still under the impact and effect of colonialism and racism and how we move forward, um, will have to unfortunately mean we have to face those systems head on. Thank you, Dr. Mufuking, for that really lucid introduction. Um, I think that it is such a useful reminder, even as much of us work on things that are quite specific, like access to vaccines or treatments, that in fact, what we all require is actually to have an entirely functioning health system. In India, I can say very much that people like us look up to the South African health system as being a much better example of how a public institution could serve the citizens of its country uh, as being at a much higher level and at being at a much better level of service than the public health system that we have in this country. Uh, you also, of course, touched upon uh, using the words colonialism, uh, but I think also in this context, and especially since we're in South Africa, what we're really seeing is also a vaccine apartheid. Uh, when uh, vaccines are denied to people on the basis of class or nationality and therefore effectively by race and ethnicity, I think it's not a stretch to extend the metaphor of apartheid to what we're seeing in the world today. Uh, in a time when uh, India has vaccinated less than 10% of its population, and uh, I'm so sorry to say that South Africa has vaccinated less than 1% of its population in uh, ways that uh, truly make us fearful of what's to come. On this topic, uh, I thought we'd bring in uh, Lina and Umunyana and then come back to you before you go. Uh, you have to leave uh, in about 10 minutes. Is that correct, Dr. Mafoki? You have to leave in 10 minutes. In fact, then, uh, could we start with you? Uh, I think you're muted. Could we start with you, Dr. Mofakin, to talk specifically about vaccine inequity for a few minutes? And then if there are questions for you, uh, I can pose them to you so that you're able to address them before you leave. Thanks. Um, it's really important, again, I think we're speaking earlier on with, with Lena, you know, about what do we do? Because I think most of us, you know, because of the activists that we are, um, we I don't know how we are not all of us just completely exhausted and depleted. You know, so we need to think of other mechanisms and other ways of, of supporting each other, um, keeping ourselves on the ground and, and, and active on the ground. But also let's, let's, let's hold other systems accountable. Um, let's hold states accountable. So we know that, um, the, the, the WTO meeting is happening, um, tomorrow. I think it's the 30th tomorrow. Um, we have the Human Rights Council, um, activities also coming up. Um, but also, you know, you can utilize this, the special, um, uh, procedures. So, you know, in terms of ongoing or past or present, um, rights, abuses or violations, if anyone has those allegations and they feel that where they live, their state, their nation, their government is failing the people to a point where those failures could be classified as rights abuses, particularly when you're looking at the right to health. Cause remember the right to health also encompasses a right to not just timeless access to healthcare, but also to the underlying determinants of health. So the issues of water and sanitation, the issues of, um, you know, infrastructure to be able to actually get to the hospital itself, um, are all important. And so I think, again, as, as the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights has previously, um, underscored that the right of everyone to enjoy the benefits of scientific progress 
right? It's, it's a human right. It's a social contract that we have with each other. But again, pandemics are also a crucial example for the need for scientific international cooperation. That's really the only way forward because viruses and all these pathogens don't respect borders. And so in the similar way that um, as a minute holder I've supported South Africa and India's proposal as a WTO, we know the WHO also um, supports um, um, the, the, the move for waivers. And I think if people have, and I will put the link for all the attendees as well, just have a look on the on the UN website, the special procedures website. See if anything that you are experiencing at the moment um, fits what is the mandate um, able to assist with, and submit those um, those submissions to myself and other colleagues um, to be able to 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 hold um, at least try get some answers from from the states um, concerned. And once about eight weeks has passed. We will then make those letters public and the answers to them public so that those who are in the different countries can then use them to advocate even further. And I think this is the time where human rights have to really override every single business profit making, um, you know, decision and intellectual property rights should not override the state's obligations. I think that's what's the most important thing here. IP rights are not more important than the state's obligations. And it is absolutely essential that they provide for immunization, but also for all the other different diseases that have now been neglected because of resource um, uh, mobilization, redirection of resources. It means there are other disasters being created within health systems, but particularly when it comes to to the issue of 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 um, access to the vaccine, there is no other way except for international cooperation and assistance. There is just no other way, um, and I think history will judge us very very harshly. And I think maybe this is also a discussion for another day, <laughs> another webinar completely about why is it that governments and the public health systems didn't have plans, they didn't have resources, they didn't have any um, uh, nationwide right system that they could use to assist them in the response. So there's also failures of individual governments in terms of leadership and healthcare planning. And we can do that at the same time as fighting for the rights of the developing and low and middle income countries to access um, resources and the vaccine, and it's very, very important. Um, remember, can yeah. I ask what your thoughts are? If your personal thoughts are on the South African vaccine rollout, if you're able to share those with us, yeah, I will share with you broadly because what we don't want to do is make individual, um, what's the word, uh, prejudge the situation. Just in case I have to deal with this matter um, uh, as an independent expert, <laughs> I still have to remain um, independent, even though I'm South African. But I can tell you what that has shown us um, is that, again, the failure of, of, of planning at district and national levels historically has led to some of the current fallouts that we're experiencing. And in South Africa, 
like in many countries around the world, you have migrants and refugees, you have um, gender diverse persons, you have people in detention, um, and again, people who are ordinarily even outside of a pandemic are cut out of health services and goods and facilities. And so it's very important when you are talking about any response to any pandemic, especially COVID-19, even when you're looking at South Africa, we have to make sure that when we say people are doing great, to include some of these other intersections and some of these people who are finding themselves in vulnerable situations, because it's no use just catering to the, you know, the, the people that the health system usually caters for anyway and not really paying attention to those who are often neglected from health services. And I think this is the risk um, that South Africa and many other countries continue to face. And at some point there was a news um, uh, announcement or press conference saying you're going to need a green ID bar uh, card uh, or book to register for a vaccine. But we know how many people in the SADC area, right, are migrating and moving around in South Africa. So what does that even mean? Never mind for 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 uh, people who are coming from East West Africa. Just think about SADC and the different corporations and the different um uh, uh um um you know um ratified corporations. If if they can't even think that far, do we then trust that they will think wide enough about everybody else with a different you know? Issues, And I think that's the problem, really, that we're facing now, is that the pandemic is allowing for other types of prejudices to be reinforced. And we need to push back on that. Thank you so much, Dr. Mofking. I know that we are out of time for you, and I know you have to leave. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us, and thank you for being here very, very much. We wish we had you for longer. Uh, but have a good rest of the day, <laughs> which I'm sure is going to be very busy. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to now introduce uh, Lina Mankani, who I feel a little, uh, <laughs> I feel a little funny introducing just because I speak to her all the time. And so, <laughs> but I'm going to try to introduce her as formally and uh, as correctly as I possibly can. Lina Mankani is the Global Intellectual Property Advisor for Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders, International Campaign for Access to Essential Medicines. Uh, she is based in New Delhi. In her work, she focuses on India's intellectual property policies and their impact on competition in essential uh, pharmaceuticals, in the pricing of medicines, in publicly funded biomedical research and development. Uh, over the last decade, she's provided technical support to a number of non-governmental organizations, think tanks, and policymakers from government on the implementation of health safeguards in the Indian system, on generic competition, on access to medicines for HIV, hepatitis C, and uh, tuberculosis. Uh, welcome, Lina. And what we thought we'd do is, uh, in the first instance, have you and Umunyana speak separately about what your topmost thoughts are on the ongoing vaccine inequity that we're living in, in the context of the TRIPS waiver discussions, in the context of a range of other larger discussions on tech transfer and the opening up of key vaccine technologies, primarily by Western pharmaceutical companies, uh, the power over which resides with Western country governments. 
so I just want to say that this time last year, there was a lot of euphoria. Um, I think it was around May when Oxford sort of uh, licensed the vaccine to AstraZeneca and then AstraZeneca exclusively licensed it to Serum Institute. Uh, there was a lot of euphoria in India and particularly among Indians and the Indian government that, you know, India was going to be producing one of the foremost candidates uh, for COVID-19. And I think someone actually did not do the calculations correct and did not realize that a single manufacturer in India would not be able to meet the needs of people in India alone, forget about the rest of the developing world. So where we are a year later is a situation where a pharmaceutical company who's never done vaccines before, such as AstraZeneca, goes on to exclusively license uh, uh, to Serum Institute. And today we are living with a situation where uh, majority of Indians who logged into COVID can't get an appointment because we are practically running out of the vaccines that Serum Institute is producing. So we are at a point where India is trying to scale up its uh, co-vaccine candidate. And at the same time, Serum Institute cannot possibly meet domestic demands, let alone international demands. And if we had not left it to the pharmaceutical industry to decide uh, how the scale up would have happened, and who the rights remain with, we would not have been in this situation. And that is why it's so important for governments to step in. Thank you, Lina. Uh, now we're to introduce Umunyana, Umunyana Rugeger, who I also feel uh, quite shy about introducing because I've worked with a lot and I respect very much. But nevertheless, the formal introduction goes as follows. Umunyana Rugeger is the Executive Director of Section 27, a human rights organization based in South Africa, our host today that seeks to achieve substantive equality and social justice. She's a human rights lawyer and has been with Section 27 since its inception in 2010. Umunyana has played a leading role in several human rights cases, advancing the right to health and works on access to medicines in particular. She has led policy development and law reform that has helped to realize the right to health, particularly for vulnerable groups and represented patient groups in the health market inquiry into the private healthcare sector. She has served on the board of a gender equality organization and is currently a member of the advisory committee to the UNAIDS executive director. Welcome, Munmanyana. And in a different situation, as you are in from us in India, in South Africa, uh, as a leading member of civil society, what do you feel about the vaccine inequity that you see around the world, but also particularly in South Africa? Because I think that. There are grades of difference here, and we should be mindful of them. The vaccination rates in South Africa are shockingly low. There is confusion around the rollout of vaccines. I think it's fair to say. Could you tell us more about that and what your personal and professional thoughts are working in the situation that you're in now? Thanks, Achal. Um, I, I also think of Lena as my sister and Achal as my brother in this work. So it's a pleasure to be on this panel. Thanks. It's a, um, it's, it's a family meeting. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, as everyone has said, the global inequality 
um, in healthcare has become so stark as a result of, of the global pandemic. Um, this is something we've been working on for decades. Um, you know, the early work in HIV, in the HIV epidemic was, was critical to unlock access to antiretrovirals. Um, and, you know, as we say all the time, these wins are not there for the taking. You actually have to do the work and fight against the status quo. And the current status quo, as we have um, heard earlier this morning, is that the power is with private companies whose only objective is to ensure that their shareholders are happy. Um, and they have extremely you know, influential lobbying power, which is why you're seeing countries um, in the European Union, countries like Norway, that, that ordinarily would be um, pushing a human rights agenda, um, suddenly are pushing very commercial interests in, in these platforms where they are there as governments, not as representatives of the pharmaceutical industry, and therefore should be concerned about their own uh, obligations, as Dr. T outlined earlier, these obligations around the international covenant um, on social and economic rights, um, you know, the right to health and um, and other rights that that include dignity, for example. Um, we are in a life and death situation here, just as we have been with HIV in the early 2000s when people were dying. Today we have people dying. India is a horrific example of what happens, as Achal has said, when governments take their foot off and where they step back um, and allow commercial interests to prejudice populations to the extent that we're seeing high levels of deaths um, and infections in India and around the world. In South Africa, uh, we have only vaccinated a handful of healthcare workers in the, the numbers around 230,000, um, although we've restarted the Johnson & Johnson rollout as of yesterday. So we need to see those vaccines rolling out. I think that the main concern that we've had is a lack of transparency from our government about the rollout, about negotiations with pharmaceutical companies, um, which we understand that lack of transparency is as a result of the kind of uh, the contracts that they had to sign and non-disclosures that they had to sign. Um, so at this point in Africa, there, there's no country that has vaccinated more than 3% um, of their populations, and some countries have had zero vaccinations. So we really are in the worst case scenario where much of Africa is really being left behind. And the, the kinds of, the kinds of, uh, the pace at which we're going now, even with COVAX, um, and with, you know, potential donations of vaccines, we're looking at 2024. Um, to vaccinate a sufficient number of people globally. Um, and as we know, we've already seen the, the um, mutations of the virus that are more and more serious, are affecting younger people. Um, and so we're going to continue to see that kind of uh, scenario unfolding as long as we don't vaccinate. Um, and so that's why we do have to challenge the status quo at the WTO and at other forums. Thanks. Thank you very much, Munyana. I was wondering, before we get to the next question, um, we have a, a, a treasure guest. I think I can call him a treasure guest. Uh, 
someone who is known to all of us. Uh, and, you know, it's a pandemic, someone who's known and loved to all of us. Maru Mongkomo is here in the audience and has a question. Uh, former DG Precious Matsoso was at the forefront of efforts to de-link research and development from costs borne by the end user via the WHO. Uh, to what extent could such initiatives help in decolonizing access to health products? Um, would either of you like to take a shot at that? Uh, since Marumo is right here, maybe we'll also have some questions for Marumo. So thanks, Marumo. Thanks for joining us. Um, and yeah, I think that the UN high-level panel on access to medicines that concluded its work, um, looking at these very issues, how do we de-link um, the R&D costs from the final costs so that we are not paying over and over again for life-saving medicines um, and essentially supporting a very profitable pharmaceutical industry at the, at the and the cost is people's lives and well-being. Um, so I think that what COVID has shown us and the very high levels of, uh, you know, public funding for the vaccine development is the very example that we've been, you know, talking about. We've said, um, and, and DG Matsoso said in this report that there is an opportunity to, uh, provide prize money, for example, or provide investment into research and development um, to so that we're not simply, you know, providing that research and development through uh, the National Institutes of Health in the United States, for example, that did a lot of actually the, the early scientific work on mRNA uh, technology. So we've done that work, we've invested publicly. Um, and so why not take that into account? There's over 20 billion in U.S. taxpayers money that has gone into the development of COVID vaccines. And yet we're seeing some of these uh, companies like Moderna, for example, um, that is projecting $5 billion in profits this year. Um, and so this is really an unbalanced system that prioritizes kind of massive profits um, instead of prioritizing lives. And so I think we have to learn and take, you know, the, take it to the next level, take that UN high level panel report to the next level and study what has happened during the pandemic and propose, you know, propose new recommendations around this kind of public investment that has taken place and the kinds of collaborations as well that we've seen amongst pharmaceutical companies and between governments to ensure access to vaccines. Thank you, Unyana. Dina, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, uh, I just wanted to add something that uh, uh, that was an incredibly important report for us. And in some ways, we are dealing with the consequences of actually ignoring that report, uh, particularly by governments. And one of the proposals was that uh, there would be an R&D treaty where countries would equally contribute to the research and development of newer products for diseases that impacted uh, humanity, but also, you know, um, neglected diseases and so on. And very importantly, because you share the cost of R&D, you also end up uh, um, having a stake in being able to decide how it is all shared among all countries. Today, we have an unequal system, which is perhaps um, ironical, you know, on Christmas when, you know, Indians are watching the UK start vaccinating and we were three months behind. And I can't imagine if you're in South Africa and other places, 
you're watching the United Kingdom uh, vaccinate its people um, and not give a thought to the fact that uh, millions of other people out, out there need the vaccine as well. So if you are to build a more equal system, you need to share the cost of R&D and, and then have a say in what uh, where those vaccines and drugs uh, are made available. Today, the richest countries have decided they will buy up all the vaccines that are most effective and keep it for themselves. And I think that report actually was ignored. And we are paying the consequence. This is the consequence of that report. The inequality is the consequence of, of ignoring that report. Thank you, Lina. Uh, Maru, if you have access to a mic, can we put you on the spot and ask you a question since you're here? <laughs> since you put yourself out and asked a question. I had a temporary uh, connection problem. Okay. Hi, Marumo, and welcome. Uh, um, uh, for those uh, who don't know, Marumo is at the DTI and is uh, somebody who has been tasked over the last several years on working on uh, issues connected to patent law in the country and comes from a background of uh, academic work as well as uh, private law experience at a law firm. Uh, Marumo, uh, I was just curious on behalf of all of us as to whether there was anything you might wish to share about patent law development in terms of the amendment bill that you've been working on, as well as what the feeling within uh, your department and government is in terms of uh, where South Africa can go and what it can do in the pandemic in terms of maybe more freedoms that have been opened up due to the crisis that's unfolding. Uh, is there anything short you might like to add on that issue? Yes, thanks, Achal, for the opportunity. And um, uh, it certainly was not my intention to uh, interrupt what I think was a very uh, good discussion between uh, Munana and, uh, and Lina, who I've seen for the first time. Uh, um, maybe just to let everyone know that um, as a department, we have heard the calls by Fix the Patent Law Coalition, uh, in particular made by the likes of Section 27, uh, to uh, ensure that our patent law uh, can meet the challenges that we are currently experiencing. Um, we are very much in the process of developing um, a reform that will fundamentally change um, the way that um, uh, patents uh, impact on public health, and, and we are very committed to seeing that finalized in the very near future. So... Um, I think that, you know, to some it may seem inconsistent that at the level of the WTO uh, through um, Dr. Dagama that you mentioned, uh, we are leading on trying to ensure that at a global level, countries have adequate policy space to uh, ensure that uh, exclusive rights don't uh, hamper uh, access to, among others, COVID vaccines. But, but, but at the same time, we're not seeing movement domestically and, and, um, certainly from, for, for an observer, uh, that kind of observation would be quite apparent. But, um, you know, you can rest assured that we are not uh, just watching what's happening in Geneva. We are participating actively and also ensuring that we have uh, in place uh, uh, legislation that's cognizant of what's happening in Geneva. So um, we're working on that uh, very, very carefully. It's just that obviously our bureaucratic processes uh, to change law um, do require quite a lot of um, um, checks and balances, and 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 we're in, in the midst of that. But certainly, we've worked very hard on and 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 um, and uh, very consistently to ensure that in the very near future, we'll be able to publish um, reform 
that will address many of the issues that um, the likes of Fixed Patent Law Coalition have for uh, many years rightly pointed out. Thank you, Baru. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry also for putting you on the spot. I just couldn't resist that. Uh, I knew, I knew of course, that you would be here because we talked yesterday. So thank you for doing that and being such a good sport about it. Um, so we'll get back to you, Lina, um, and talk a little bit about uh, some of the other questions we wanted to address. Uh, in terms of the international solidarity that you've seen around the TRIPS waiver proposal, as well as other efforts to have technology transfer. What have you seen that's worked so far? And I understand very much that we are far, far away from having any of these things become an actual reality. Where do you see some signs of progress in terms of things that can be both immediately useful for us in the pandemic that can actually create units of technology like vaccines that we could use in the pandemic, as well as things that will be useful in the months and years to come after the pandemic, because there is a life after this pandemic where, you know, we will go back to talking about access to medicines for diseases that the whole world is not suffering from and is not talking about and therefore can be ignored. So where do you see this going both immediately and in the near future? So if COVID has any silver lining, it is that that uh, it has turned the one thing that I think most developing countries other than India uh, and a couple of others always heard that, you know, there's no point in making your own vaccines and drugs because it's just not economical. So what we're really seeing is this, the, you see WHO, Dr. Tedros talk about building regional capacity. And I think there's going to be a real push for the first time to take manufacturing beyond Asia, beyond Bangladesh and India. And I think that's so very welcome, uh, including for vaccines. I think that that's the single most silver, biggest silver lining that countries have recognized, that regions have recognized that countries which have manufacturing capacity have the ability to roll out the vaccines first. And therefore, there's much more being done about building capacity. So that's one. And number two, I would like to say is this, that if um, anybody who's been part of the HIV AIDS movement knows it, the, the pain of going through uh, each patent in each country. Uh, I remember the days when we were fighting uh, Pfizer on the linoselit patent uh, in, in for drug-resistant tuberculosis. And we had to find the patent status. And uh, luckily, they forgot to pay the fees. So we were so euphoric uh, that, you know, it was going to become a generic. Uh, Ukraine, pediatric formulations of sex, the obvious answer that you shouldn't have to deal with intellectual property barriers country by country, drug by drug, product by product. And I think that's where I, I, I believe in the TRIPS waiver quite steadfastly for the long term, that if we are to treat people who are landing up at the hospitals, and today the biggest need in India is a therapeutic to prevent hospitalization and to treat the very sick people in hospitals. For a drug like Remdesivir that does not work, there's a shortage. And India is a key manufacturing country. So a country that manufactures medicines is not able to provide the drug to its own people with five manufacturers. And that's where you should not leave the rulemaking to pharma and open it out beyond India and also within India by having the TRIPS waiver. So the therapeutics area, for example, and as much as people want to talk about vaccines, I want to talk about the people who are sick and need treatments now in India. And we need the therapeutics and we don't want monopolies on them when they actually arrive and don't have to fight them country by country. So I think that's where I think the TRIPS waiver is such an important proposal by South Africa and India. 
Yes, thank you so much. I think that that's true. There is this unbelievable sense of solidarity that I certainly feel and that we feel, I think, here in this room. Umunyana, what are your thoughts on where the solidarity could take us both in the short run in terms of achievable gains that we could make in the pandemic for the pandemic as well as in the near term after the pandemic? Yeah, I think that um, the pandemic has really prompted African governments in particular to think about the very question that Lena raised, which is, is it worth investing huge amounts of money? How do we do it? Who are the financing partners? How do we bring in the World Bank, for example, um, the, the, IM, the IMF and IFC, other kind of financing mechanisms? And what is their role, actually, um, during the pandemic? but also in investing in manufacturing capacity. And the African CDC about two weeks ago um, had a big conference with um, all the political leaders coming to pledge their support to building out um, African capacity um, beyond South Africa and places like Morocco and Egypt. Um, and to, to really start thinking about what, what is the 20-year plan um, you know, because that's the kind of investment that you need. Um, in South Africa, we have been talking about that for a long time. Um, I think we've been talking about a state pharmaceutical company for the last 20 years. Um, we have the Biovac Institute, um, which has not been able to manufacture, but has done some fill and finish work around childhood vaccines. Um, and they are, in fact, going to be doing uh, some of the logistics to roll out um, a, a mass vaccination program in South Africa, which is uh, desperately needed at this point. Um, but in the near term, I think the, the critical solidarity that we need is the support to uh, mechanisms like CTAP and COVAX. Um, you know, what uh, Dr. Tedros of the WHO keeps saying is that um, the problem is not getting uh, COVAX vaccines out into countries. The problem is getting uh, vaccines into COVAX. Um, and that's because there isn't enough funding to put those vaccines into the COVAX mechanisms to ensure developing countries have access. Um, but also there's this global scarcity that we've been talking about of vaccines um, that, is, that we're saying is really as a result of the lack of sharing of know-how, um, you know, sharing the vaccine recipes to ensure that we do have, we're able to pivot some manufacturing capacity uh, towards producing COVID vaccines. Um, I think Archer and I have spoken about the fact that 12 months ago, nobody was making COVID vaccines. Nobody was using mRNA technology, but several select companies have been chosen to be able to do that. Um, and we need to expand that manufacturing capacity urgently. Thank you, Munyana. Uh, I'm aware that you have to leave very shortly. And I just want to say on behalf of Lena and I, I think that there is also another situation here, which I think she brought up, which is quite critical, which is that self-reliance takes on a new meaning. And I think in a situation like this, it is particularly important to think of self-reliance at a much more local level than we've thought of it before. And a part of that problem is our country. So I think as hard as the tragedy is to watch that's unfolding, to watch uh, 
one of the reasons why the COVAX facility has failed, one of the many reasons, uh, apart from the fact that it was almost created to fail, is the fact that India is actually uh, banning the export of vaccines, right? So, you know, this is something that we should acknowledge. I think that there are several sub-Saharan African economies who have received far, far short of what they expected to, uh, not only because of COVAX, COVAX's own design failures, but also because of the fact that the resurgence in India has had uh, a tragic compounded consequence whose effect reverberates long outside India's borders in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly the countries like Ghana and Nigeria will have to stay put and content with enough vaccinations for just 1% of their populations until we can deal with our resurgence, right? This is really a sort of Sophie's Choice type situation, um, which is, I think, in many ways traceable back to the roots of that problem, which is that there aren't enough vaccines being licensed to enough people, either in India or in other parts of the world, right? So that you could distribute the risk in some sense. Unyan, I know you have to go, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me and thank you for having us. Um, Lina, I think that that is uh, an interesting situation to close on, right? Uh, it, it seems like, you know, there are limits of solidarity as well, right? I mean, South Africa and India have a trade proposal together at the WTO to, to suspend monopolies in the pandemic, but we're also behaving differently. And I, I, I hesitate to say in some way that it's exceptional to India because I think that it is possibly a situation that any country in this position perhaps, right? And in our case, aided perhaps by a particularly incompetent and short-sighted policy of managing vaccine access in the country that was implemented far too late, resulted in this kind of compounded situation, right? So do you want to close us up with a few words on that in terms of the limits of solidarity and the importance of self-reliance at a much more local level than we have thought of before? So I think uh, what is happening in the amidst the humanitarian crisis is that it's become very, very clear that uh, vaccines from India will not not only be not available till July, but maybe, you know, extend further till the end of the year. Um, and what has really happened is this in, in trying to protect its own people, uh, the government of India has sort of, you know, basically said there can be no more vaccine exports. What, what it really means is that I wish, you know, a year ago, instead of celebrating the deal between Oxford, AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca and Serum Institute, we had bothered to look at the contract between the three parties and opened it up to scrutiny to our public bodies and not had blind faith in this in this pharma uh, industry. And I think when, I, when we talk about solidarity, I think the governments need to be realized that actually what really works is, is public investment in scaling up vaccines looking at the contracts that determine them, investing in the technology. And lastly, I think uh, the the IP waiver is a no-brainer because you're going to be facing a lot of challenges as Gilead has just, you know, uh, uh, sued the Russian government over Remdesivir. So you're going to face all these challenges and it's, it's an absolute no-brainer that countries like Norway, UK, US um, and Canada are seeing this tragedy unfold in India where drugs and vaccines are not enough, and yet say that the TRIPS waiver uh, should not be, you know, we shouldn't start negotiating it. And I, I feel that, you know, in that particular sense, uh, Norway's role as a chair of, uh, uh, of the negotiations, in a way, of what will happen to the proposal is key. I think uh, uh, Norway has expressed that it doesn't support the waiver, 
and has now con- now become the chair uh, at the World Trade Organization's council. So we are going to have a very tough battle on our hand uh, to turn the tide on these countries. Absolutely. And, you know, on a closing note, I wish I could end on a happier note of solidarity. But I think, unfortunately, we're all in a solidarity of urgency and a degree of oppression and poverty, especially of vaccines and treatments. You have a pharmaceutical industry in the West that is barely able to serve the West. You have vaccination rates even in countries like Canada or in European countries that far lag the kind of vaccination rates that you see in the United Kingdom or the United States. So even in the West, within the West, there are disparities and there are shortages and and many complaints. Within large vaccine manufacturing countries like India, you have the situation where export bans have effectively meant that vaccines for about 91 other poor countries or about a third of the world are, are held frozen until the end of this year at an unjustifiably low level. But at the same time, I spent all of today, for instance, trying to find an appointment for my parents and my sister to get a second dose of their AstraZeneca vaccine, and I couldn't. I'll probably be able to get it tomorrow or day after, but we are facing growing shortages here as well. So not only are we hurting internally, we are also, unfortunately, uh, the contracts to make vaccines in India for access haven't actually even satisfied the country that is holding back exports in order to treat itself. If this situation globally does not prompt a change, including in the passing of a TRIPS waiver proposal that South Africa and India proposed, I truly don't fully understand what will, short of an alien invasion. And on that unfortunate note, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Section 37, for hosting us. Um, and have a very have a have a safe and good day uh, with your loved ones. Thank you for being here. Thank you. On behalf of Fix the Patent Laws campaign in Section 27, thank you, Lena and Achal, the remaining speakers, for, for being with us today. Just to say that there, there are a couple questions noted in the Q&A and in the chat box, which we don't have time to address this uh, this morning or this afternoon. And we're going to address those to the panelists via email, and we'll try and respond with their answers as soon as possible. But thank you all so much for attending today. And like Achal said, please stay safe. And thank you. Thank you again.